The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello again, everybody. This is Kanaz Filan, back with you once again for the 19th episode of Notes from the End of Time. We're going to be taking a look at the Grail legend again today. Last week, I talked about how the situation in 5th century Britain after Rome pulled out and the collapse of British civilization into what they call sub-Roman Britain may provide some pointers for what we can expect in the years to come. When Roman rule ended in Great Britain, there was a long period of chaos and one battle that happened in Badon Hill, as I said last week, we don't know much about it. We're not even certain of the warlord who led the battle. Some call him Ambrosius and some call him Arthur. But that battle became the defining myth of the English people. And this week, I want to talk more about that myth and how this little squabble on an obscure hill between Saxons and Bretons became such a big deal. What happened? How was that myth made? Because if we're coming into a collapse, and I think it's inevitable we are coming into a collapse, and I think, in fact, it's inevitable that it's going to happen sooner rather than later, we need to think about the myths that we are creating. What are people going to be saying about us 500 years from now, a thousand years from now? What stories are they going to tell about the fall of America and about the new states that arise in its wake? And to that end, let's take a look at a source that was written about 300 years after Gildas told his story of the Battle of Baden Hill. It's called Historia Britannum. It is attributed to a Welsh monk named Nennius. The story he tells has sources from Old Welsh. He was a Welsh monk. He goes into a little more detail about Arthur. He, he notes that Arthur was not the highest ranking amongst the Britons. We have not gotten to the King Arthur story yet. But Nennius says that because Arthur was such a skilled warlord, he was chosen to lead in 12 battles, and he won every one of them. At the eighth battle, he wore an image of the Virgin Mary on his shoulders, and what he might have meant there was not that he was carrying a Virgin Mary on his shoulders, but he may have mistranslated the word for shield. So in other words, he had an image of the Virgin on his shield, and through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Mary, put the Saxons to flight and pursued them the whole day with great slaughter. The twelfth battle was at Badan, 
and according to Nennius, 940 fell by Arthur's hand alone, no one but the Lord offering him assistance. And the first thing you may know is it's a bit incredible that a single man could kill 970 people in one battle, no matter how skilled he is, but this gets into a very important point about the difference between the medieval and the modern worldview. In the modern worldview, truth is connected to accuracy. You want to look at the data. You want to know exactly how many people were at the battle, exactly what happened, exactly where the battle is located. For us, truth is inextricably connected to facts. The medieval scholar viewed the world as imago Dei. It was the image of God. And when you looked at historical events, you wanted to find, above all, the lessons to be gained therein. You know, what was the moral point of this battle? And you know, the point here was Arthur's heroism. This also was Synecdoche was involved here. Arthur was shorthand for Arthur and his troops, and the idea of Arthur and a small band of men killing 970 is a bit less incredible. It's also the point being made that Arthur was a great leader and a great hero. There is also the note that Arthur had the image of the Virgin on his shoulders or on his shield, as you prefer, this is interesting because at this time, pagan marauders are still a problem. Within a century or so after the heathens, the Saxons, had taken England, they had converted to Christianity. At this point, Saxons and Britons share a common religion. But you still have heathen Northmen coming in and raiding. In 793, you have a famous raid on Lindisfarne. You had raids on monasteries up and down on, off the coasts of Britain. The famous prayer from the fury of the Northmen, deliver us, O Lord. The Northmen had taken territory in France and continued to raid it. They would con continue to do so. So Pagan marauders were a very real threat. There was also the threat, while France is dealing with pagan marauders, a significant chunk of the old Roman province of Hispana, modern-day Spain, is under the control of the Emirate of Cordoba and is Muslim. And so, as we see, for several centuries after the fall of Rome, things were pretty chaotic in Europe. The people in Britannia and in Gaul had not been particularly fond of the Romans when they occupied them. They fought some pretty bloody wars to try to keep them out. But once they were gone and chaos commenced, they came to look back on Rome, the Roman occupation times, as a sort of golden age. And one of the things that they looked upon nostalgically, one of the things that provided a cohesive sense of unity for them was the, a religion which really was only introduced in the twilight of the Western Roman Empire, Christianity. And Christianity caught on with did not catch on with the Muslims, but it certainly caught on with the Northmen 
The Saxons converted to Christianity, as I'd mentioned earlier, not long after occupying England. In the ninth century, you started seeing heathen northmen making raids on the coast of France, bordering on the English Channel. In 911, King Charles the Simple strikes a deal with one of the northern warlords, Rollo, and if Rollo agrees to become his vassal in exchange, Charles cedes to him the land which was already occupied by northern invaders, and as a condition of this, Rollo converts to Christianity, and much as the Bretons who had fled the Saxons in the 5th century were living in a coastal area called Brittany, we saw this region became known as you know, the land of the Northmen, or as they call it in French, Normandy, and this is where we get the Normans from. They are descended from Northmen who came into France and converted to Christianity, married into the local population. In the later days of the Roman Empire, Constantine and later his successor Theodosius, who made Christianity the official religion, envisioned one religion for the entire empire. There had been moves towards this a bit earlier. Aurelian tried to set up a Sol Invictus cult, which, as I have mentioned before, Constantine was a devotee of Sol Invictus. Also to their east, the Persians had made Zoroastrianism the official religion of their empire. In the Eastern Roman Empire, of course, you saw what's now called Byzantium has become the center of Christendom, and Byzantium is renowned for being fabulously wealthy. Most of the luxury goods you were seeing in Europe were coming through Byzantium, which is a huge center of trade. It's very strategically located on the Bosporus. They were bringing in silks from China, spices from India, gold, silver. It was Byzantium was seen as a place of power and order. And when you're living in an area full of small towns that are regularly facing battles, attacks from one warlord or another, that's very, very appealing. So. Christendom came to be seen as a civilized religion, as a religion that would put you in touch with the greater world, and it also, not coincidentally, gave you better access to trade, the better access to education. Latin, which was the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, of course, became a lingua franca in Christendom. But here was a rather interesting thing. The educated Romans, for them, Latin was more a common tongue for the people. They tended to do their affairs and their writing in Greek. That persisted in the Eastern Roman Empire. By about the 7th century, a lot of of the Constantinople's language, lingua franca, was Greek. Latin was a second tongue, and in fact, it came to be looked down upon a bit because Byzantium saw Western Europe as a land full of uncivilized, superstitious barbarians. 
And this would create a lot of tension that would blow up later as it was called the Great Schism. It's the schism that separates orthodoxy, what we call today, Eastern Christianity from Roman Catholicism, which of course is headquartered in Rome and is very much influenced by the Western Roman Empire. Christianity also provided a moral language and an identity which could bring different tribes and different groups together or at least provide them with a framework for negotiation and debate. Now, I am not saying that intertribal squabbling ended altogether. Europe, early medieval Europe and Europe during the Middle Ages was a very violent place. There was still a lot of what we would call crime, crime rates, highwaymen, homicides. That was still a rough and brutal place but there was also room for people to go beyond those tribal affiliations and those blood feuds and to start working together as Christian soldiers against a common enemy. And this was one of the things that really helped to shape a European identity in the Middle Ages. From pretty much the 10th century on, to be European was to be Christian. There definitely were conversions at sword point. Charlemagne famously beheaded some Franks who refused to convert to Christianity. Boniface chopped down some sacred oaks. But Christianity spread as much by or more by osmosis than by bloodshed. People joined Christendom because they felt that Christendom offered safety, security, and benefits, and because they found that that spiritual message resonated with them. And it's also important to note that Christianity did not entirely eradicate the pre-Christian beliefs and folktales that came before it, Rather, it incorporated them into a greater narrative. Let's look again. Let's go back to Nennius in 830. He tells the tale that Gildas had mentioned earlier about Vortigern, the evil king who brings the Saxons in. But here's an interlude where Vortigern meets a young boy who leads him to a hidden pool. There's a tent there and two snakes, one red and one white. And those snakes struggle until the red one chases the white one out of the tent into the wa- and into the water. Now, the boy identifies himself as Ambrose, the son of a Roman council. And Gildas earlier had said that the, the warrior who won the battles against the Saxons in the, early, in the late 5th or early 6th century was named Ambrosius, and he was the son of Roman parents. A couple centuries later, this young boy is identified as Ambrose, the son of a Roman council. And what he explains to Vortigern about this strange encounter he's had is, I will now unfold to you the meaning of this mystery. The pool is the emblem of this world, and the tent, that of your kingdom. The two serpents are two dragons. 
the red serpent is your dragon, but the white serpent is the dragon of the people who occupy several provinces and districts of Britain, even almost from sea to sea. At length, however, our people shall rise and drive away the Saxon race from beyond the sea whence they originally came. But do you depart from this place where you are not permitted to erect a citadel? I, to whom fate has allotted this mansion, shall remain here, whilst to you it is incumbent to seek other provinces where you may build a fortress. And these images, the child who prophesies, the red serpent and the white serpent, these are tales from pre-Christian Britons. They were found in Wales. Similar tales are found in Ireland and in Cornwall. These pre-Christian images have become incorporated into a Christian legend. An Irish tale tells the story of St. Comgall baptizing a mermaid who was caught in a net. According to the story, her name was Liban. She was the daughter of Yached, king of Ulster. And one day, Yached's palace floods, and as do his lands, everybody who lives there drowns, except Liban, who lives under the lake which forms Lake Iod for, for a year with her pet dog. After that, she's transformed into a mermaid, and her dog is transformed into an otter. For 300 years, Laban swims through around the sea, swims east, swims west, hither, thither, over each sea, until she's caught in this net by Comgall. She is educated in Christianity. He baptizes Laban, and when she dies, she's buried in a monastery and becomes known as the Mermaid Saint. And of course, this is a common accusation raised against Roman Catholicism, is that we incorporated a lot of paganism and pagan rituals which are unscriptural, and frankly for me, that is a feature, not a bug. My ancestors were not savages who walked around in benighted darkness. They were seeking the truth, and as J.R.R. Tolkien said, one of my favorite quotes by Tolkien is, Anybody who sets out to sail toward the true harbor and seeks the truth will get a glimpse of the truth. Christianity did not arise in a vacuum. It shaped the lives of its adherents, but its adherents also shaped Christianity, and they shaped Christianity according to their worldview. Christianity incorporated ideas from surrounding religions and recast them in a Christian light. Hence the title of this episode, The Baptized Gods. And we're going to return again to The Baptized Gods in a few minutes. But for right now, let's turn our attention back to those Northmen who landed on the coast of France and who are now residing near Brittany in an area that's become Normandy. Now, it's a common canard that Christianity is a slave religion and it makes people pacifists, and the Normans, alas, never got that memo. The Normans went on to become some of the greatest warriors in France. About 150 years after the conversion of the Normans, we see Norman forces led by William the Conqueror famously winning the Battle of Hastings and 
occupying what had been Saxon-held England. And 30 years after that 1066 victory, in 1096, Norman Crusaders are some of the first and fiercest warriors on the campaign to retake the Holy Land at by 1099, for 475, nearly 500 years, the Holy Land had been in non-Christian hands. The Persians had been holding it. Then when Persia fell to the Islamic onslaught, it was in Muslim hands. And it had been in Muslim hands, as I said, for 475 years. By 1099, Christians controlled Jerusalem. And this had a profound cultural effect on Europe and on European Christianity in a number of ways. One of the first things that happened was we started seeing a big craze for relics. Now, I should explain, as a Catholic, you know, veneration of relics has always been part of the religion Altars still contain the bones of saints in many cases. That is not something new, but what was new was the unprecedented enthusiasm about relics. Now that we controlled Jerusalem and we controlled the sites where Christ was born, where Christ preached, where Christ was crucified, people started finding relics all over the place. And even then, there was some suspicion about the provenance of many of the relics. There was a joke going around that was contemporary, that if you put all the splinters of the true cross together, you could build a boat with it. There were multiple churches who claimed to be holding the prepuce of Jesus. That By that, they meant the foreskin of Jesus, which was removed during his circumcision. I'm not sure why anybody would have thought to save that, but I guess they didn't have baby pictures in those days. So there were thorns from the crown of thorns. There is still one in, I believe it's in Notre Dame Cathedral. I am not sure where it is now after the fire, but King Louis, St. Louis, brought one back from the Crusades. There were just this craze to find pieces of ancient Christian history and that becomes reflected as we start seeing stories about the Holy Grail. In these stories, the Holy Grail is to, traditionally the cup Jesus used at the Last Supper and a cup in which some of his blood was gathered after he was taken down from the cross. And there's also a holy lance, which is the lance which a soldier pierced his side with. As it, they are, appear in the stories, the spear bears a great deal of resemblance to the spear of Le in Celtic mythology. It's a spear which wounds a king in the thigh, as they say in the myths. Anybody reading in medieval times would have known what you meant was this emasculated the king or wounded him in the genitals and turns a verdant kingdom into a wasteland. The Holy Grail, with its power to heal, its power to feed hundreds, is very similar to the Cauldron of Dagda. There's a syncretization of both these ideas. The 
grail and the lance are holy Christian and holy pre-Christian, and the conduit which links them is a figure who's mentioned once in passing in the Gospels. It's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Now, in the canonical Gospels, Joseph of Arimathea lends his tomb to Jesus so that Jesus can get a proper burial after he's crucified. But there were other stories about him in apocryphal Gospels which were not placed within the Holy Bible, were not considered sacred scripture, but which were familiar to many of the scribes and monks who and troubadours who first started compiling these grail legends. The One of the more extended stories of Joseph comes from the Gospel of Nicodemus, and it's also known as the Acts of Pilate. And in the Gospel of Nicodemus, we're told that after Christ was crucified, the Pharisees captured Joseph of Arimathea and imprisoned him so they could kill him on Sunday. Now, when the Pharisees come to his cell that morning to take him out to be executed, they find that his cell is empty and there's nobody there, and that's their first surprise of the day. Now, these the Pharisees, according again to the Gospel of Nicodemus, are facing really increasingly uncomfortable questions from people that are asking them, you know, I thought Jesus was crucified, but yet I saw him at the market. You know, I've, we've seen Jesus. We've seen Jesus preach. And the Pharisees are getting really worried about this. So they send an apology to Joseph. They have a messenger go to Arimathea to his home, and they acknowledge, okay, your miraculous escape was proof God didn't want you killed. If you, Could you come back here to Jerusalem? We want to find out what happened. And Joseph returns to Jerusalem, and he explains to the Pharisees, and this is a quote from the Gospel, in the evening of the preparation, when you secured me in prison, I fell a-praying throughout the whole night and throughout the whole day of the Sabbath. And at midnight I see the prison house that four angels lifted it up, holding it by the four corners. And Jesus came in like lightning, and I fell to the ground from fear. Taking hold of me, therefore, by the hand, he raised me, saying, Fear not, Joseph. Thereafter, embracing me, he kissed me and said, Turn thyself and see who I am. Turning myself, therefore, and looking, I said, My Lord, I know not who thou art. He says, I am Jesus, whom thou didst bury the day before yesterday. I say to him, Show me the tomb, and then I shall believe. He took me, therefore, by the hand, and led me away to the tomb which had been opened. And seeing the linen and the napkin, and recognizing him, I said, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, and I adored him. Then, taking me by the hand, and accompanied by the angels, he brought me to my house in Arimathea, and said to me, Sit here for forty days, for I go to my disciples, in order that I may enable them fully to proclaim my resurrection. Another folk legend of the time claimed that Joseph of Arimathea was not just a wealthy believer, he was 
he was Christ's uncle and that he had grown wealthy as a tin merchant. And now that is not really far-fetched. We know that there was a great deal of trade in tin along the Mediterranean. We have found Phoenician merchants, tin ingots that we found. We've done isotope checks, and that tin came from what was at that time one of the largest tin mining sites in the ancient world. It was at Cornwall. And so a legend grew up that a teenage Jesus had traveled with his uncle to Cornwall on a business trip. And this is the tale that inspired William Blake wrote a poem called Jerusalem. You know, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green and was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? That was based on a long-standing Cornish legend. And again, you know, I cannot say that Joseph of Arimathea specifically traveled there at that time, but I can say that within the first century before the, you would have seen merchants traveling from the Levant, from what we call today the Middle East, through the Mediterranean, out to Cornwall to get access to the tin mines. That would have been a long and an arduous trip, but it definitely would have been could have been a lucrative trip. So that part maybe again, it that's another one of those examples. It's a legend which has at least some root in historical fact. Another contemporary legend stated that Joseph of Arimathea came to England after his release, and he he built the first church in England on the site of what became Glastonbury Abbey, and he planted his staff in the ground, and from that staff grew the holy thorn of Glastonbury. That was a hawthorn tree which bloomed on the dates of Christmas and Easter. That holy thorn tree was cut down during the English Civil War by Oliver Cromwell's forces. Cuttings were saved from it, and there are still cuttings of that thorn tree. There, there was a holy thorn on the old site in Glastonbury. It had been there since 1951. It was vandalized in 2010 by people with unknown motivations. Experts have concluded that the holy thorn did in fact originate in the Middle East. So it's a curious mystery we have here. And a poem written at the beginning of the 13th century by a man named Robert of Barone, Joseph Dalmithamay, Joseph of Arimathea, expounded further on, Nic on the Gospel of Nicodemus story. In this story, Joseph and Nicodemus take Christ down from the cross Joseph keeps some of Christ's blood in the chalice from the Last Supper. In this story, Joseph is not released on Sunday morning. He's thrown into the depths of a dark, noisome dungeon and left alone for 35 years. But each day for 35 years, a dove flies into his cell bearing a single Eucharist wafer. 
And this sustains Joseph until he's finally freed. When they come in to check up on him, somebody thinks, oh, of course you're just going to find a skeleton. He's been there without food or water for 35 years. They come, they come down. He is still alive and he is freed. From there, he travels to a distant land with the grail, which he has received from Jesus. He travels with a relative named Hebron, but Hebron is most is called throughout the poem Bron, and anybody who knows anything about Celtic mythology will think, gee, that name greatly resembles Bron the Blessed. And Joseph Bron and ten other virtuous men in this land, they spend years feasting on food which only righteous people can eat or can even see. Bron has 12 mighty sons, and Robert of Boron's story ends with the company heading west, and Bron, the rich fisherman, as they call him, receives the grail from a dying Joseph, and then moves to Britain. And these efforts to link English history with, the, with Christian mythology have a lot of precedent. When Virgil wrote the Aeneid, he linked the founding of Rome to exiles fleeing from Troy after they had lost the Trojan War. And that was to link Rome with Greek history because Romans always had a very interesting relationship with Greek culture. The Greeks were seen as more sophisticated. They were better philosophers they were better intellectuals, but Romans were better fighters. And so Rome conquered Greece, but then ultimately Greece conquered Rome. As I mentioned earlier, Roman aristocrats and Roman courtiers did most of their writing in Greek, gave most of their speeches in Greek. Latin takes on the role which Greek did in post-Roman Europe. In the case of the Grail legend, they were not particularly interested in learning Hebrew or Aramaic or making it a lingua franca, but they wanted to connect British history to biblical history, and that was the role that Joseph of Arimathea held, and he becomes a pivotal figure in the Grail legend, especially after 1191, when monks at Glastonbury Abbey exhume a large hollow oak marked with a lead cross, which proclaims, Here lies buried the glorious king Arthur and Guinevere, his second wife, in the Isle of Avalon. We have an eyewitness account to this disinterment from a monk named Gerald of Wales. He notes that Arthur's bones were so huge that his shank bone, when placed against the tallest man in the place, reached a good three inches above his knee, and that the eye socket was a good palm in width. And Gerald Want was very happy to find these bones excavated, because he really hoped to tamp down a rather embarrassing old superstition, which was still pretty common among the Bretons. As Gerald explains, 
the body of Arthur, who had been mortally wounded, was carried off by a certain noble matron called Morgan, who was his cousin, to the Isle of Avalon, which is now known as Glastonbury. Under Morgan's supervision, the corpse was buried in the churchyard there. As a result, the credulous Bretons and their bards invented the legend that a fantastic sorceress called Morgan had removed Arthur's body to the Isle of Avalon so that she might cure his wounds there. According to them, once he is recovered from his wounds, this strong and all-powerful king will return to rule over the Britons in the normal way. The result of all this is that they really expect him to come back, just as the Jews, led astray by even greater stupidity, misfortune, and misplaced faith, really expect their Messiah to return. And Gerald of Wales is not the only person to mention this belief among the Bretons. In a poem which he released privately in about 1140 or thereabouts called Vita Merleni, The Life of Merlin, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who's a historian I want to talk about more next week when I discuss Thomas of Mallory and his Mort d'Arthur, gave us a like, describes... Arthur's final resting place. More precisely, he has Merlin Wilt, Mad Merlin, who's very similar to a figure like he's found throughout the Celtic and Gaelic world. The Scots call him Lilacan in Ireland. He's known as Mad Sweeney. And Merlin, Merthyn Wilt, or as he would become Merlin in English, is wandering about and he meets the bard Taliesin, and Taliesin tells Merlin of Arthur's final resting place on Inesophalon, you know, the island of apples, and he says that that is the place where nine sisters exercise a kindly rule over those who come to them from our land. The one who is first among them has greater skill in healing, as her beauty surpasses that of her sisters. Her name is Morgan, and she has learned all the uses of plants in curing the ills of the body. She knows, too, the art of changing her shape, of flying through the air like Daedalus on strange wings. At will she is now at Brest, now at Chart, now at Pavia, and at will she glides down from the sky onto your sh shores. It was there we took Arthur after the Battle of Camlin, where he had been wounded. Berinthus was the steersman because of his knowledge of the seas and the stars of heaven. With him at the tiller of the ship, we arrived there with the prince, and Morgan received us with due honor. She put the king in her chamber on a golden bed, uncovered his wound with her noble hand, and looked long at it. At length she said he could only be cured if he stayed with her a long while and accepted her treatment. We therefore happily committed the king to her care and spread our sails to favorable winds on our return journey. And Geoffrey certainly took some liberties with the source matter. That's in his version of the story. Arthur subdues Scotland, Ireland, Iceland, the Orkneys, Norway, Dacia, modern-day Romania, Aquitaine, and Gaul. He defeats the armies of Lucius Tiberius and conquers Rome. His father, Euther, has Merlin use magic to move Stonehenge from Ireland to its present location. All these things, they were not 
gullible in the 12th century. They were aware that maybe Geoffrey of Monmouth had exaggerated things a bit, but as William of Newburgh, who was writing at the very end of the 12th century, somewhere between 1196 and 1198, puts it, all the things which Geoffrey took care to write about Arthur and either his predecessors after Vortigern or his successors can be seen to have been partly concocted by himself and partly by others, either because of a frenzied passion for lying or in order to please the Britons, most of whom are known to be so primitive that they are still said to be awaiting the return of Arthur and will not suffer themselves to hear that he is dead. There was even a fair bit of skepticism about the Glastonbury find. There was a fire in 1184 at Glastonbury Abbey, which destroyed a few buildings. In 1189, Henry II, who was Glastonbury Abbey's most generous patron, died. And so by 1191, Glastonbury Abbey was desperately short on funds and it needed money for rebuilding and for maintenance and the tombs of Arthur and Guinevere were certainly found at a very convenient time. We can't confirm who was in the tombs of Arthur and Guinevere. Unfortunately, the great marble sarcophagi that they built for King Arthur and Queen Guinevere was destroyed during the Reformation. The contents inside were scattered, so we have nothing to go on for what was in that sarcophagus or who was in that sarcophagus. But one thing we know for certain is that for every skeptic, there were hundreds of believers who were ready to pay homage to Arthur, Guinevere, and Joseph of Arimathea, Glastonbury Abbey became a major pilgrimage site and transformed these Christian and pre-Christian legends into something which helped shape an English identity the way the Homeric poems had helped create a Hellenic people in Greece. So by the mid-13th century, the foundations of Camelot were firmly in place. You have this potent blend of history, mythology, Christian and pre-Christian thinking that has created an internally contradictory at times corpus of legend that yet rings true. Again, getting back to that Tolkien quote, it points toward the true harbor. Tales of brave King Arthur and his noble knights inspired crusaders to deeds of glory and those deeds would then be woven back into the Arthurian tapestry but the problem was, just like the 6th century warlord whose story started this whole myth cycle, the Pope would raise a crusade, knights would come in on the crusade, they'd either win or lose, but they didn't stay in the Holy Land. That Europe never colonized the Holy Land, never ensured that there was a strong, lasting Christian presence there. They just had rotations of various knights, and so they kept losing territory. By 1291, the Christians had been driven out of their last stronghold at Acre. Since that time, the Holy Land has never again been held by Christian forces. And a couple decades after losing the Holy Land, 
Northern Europe gets hit with what we call the Little Ice Age. It was cold, wet weather. There were crop failures across Northern Europe between 1315 and 1317. We have surviving contemporary records from Ramsey Abbey in Cambridgeshire, England. It shows in one manner only six of 48 animals survived. In another manner, the number of cows went from 45 to 2. People consumed the last of the seed grain. After that, they started resorting to bark, grass, dogs, mice, and ultimately far worse. When you read Grimm's Hansel and Gretel, a lot of scholars believe that that story of a stepmother pressuring her husband to abandon the stepchildren, her stepchildren in the woods because there's no food, and a witch taking them in to fatten them up so she can eat them, is an echo of that time period. It was a time when excess children were abandoned, and those children were, at times, eaten. The Great Famine claimed an estimated 10% of Northern Europe's population between 1315 and 1317. Not until around 1325 did crop production return to normal in the region. Then, in 1347, 12 ships full of Genoese merchants who were fleeing a Crimean epidemic landed in Messina, Sicily. When dock workers got on board, they found that most of the sailors were already dead, and those still alive were covered in oozing black boils. By 1348, the Black Death had spread throughout southern Europe, and between 1347 and 1353, the Black Death killed between 25 and 50 million Europeans, the mortality rate in the countryside was around 25%. In cities like London, Florence, and Paris, more than half the population succumbed to the Black Death. We have a record of what the Black Death did in Florence. From Andy Boccaccio, this is in from his Decameron. Some there were who conceived that to live moderately and keep oneself from all excess was the best defense against such a danger. Wherefore, making up their company, they lived removed from every other and shut themselves up in houses where none had been sick and where living was best. And there, using very temperately in the most delicate viands and the finest wines and eschewing all incontinence, they abode with music as such other diversions as they might have, never suffering themselves to f speak with any, nor choosing to hear of any news from without of death or sick folk. Others, inclined to the contrary opinion, maintained that to carouse and make merry and go about singing and frolicking and satisfy the appetite in everything possible, and laugh and scoff at whatever befell was a very certain remedy for such an ill. That which they said they put in practice as best they might, going about day and night, now to this tavern, now to that, drinking without stint or measure, and on this wise they did yet more freely in other folks' houses. But they sent it there, Ought they like to tempted them as they might lightly do, for every one, as he were to live all no longer, had abandoned all care of his possessions as of his self, 
Wherefore, the most part of the houses were become common good, and strangers used them when as they happened upon them, like as the very owner might have done. And with all this bestial preoccupation, they still shunned the sick to the best of their power. This is also a time when you start seeing the rise of the flagellates who are going through town scourging themselves for their sins. Mobs start burning Jews and heretics because they're convinced that they are the reason why God's wrath has befallen upon them. But there is one unexpected upside to all of this chaos. Labor shortages in the wake of the Black Death lead to the higher wages. They lead to the development of a growing middle class among the survivors. This is the end times for the age of feudalism. The Middle Ages have ended in famine and pestilence. And out of those ashes, we're going to see a renaissance arise. And so... This is bringing this back into the current era. The first thing that jumps out at me is just how important these myths are to the development of a people, how they survive some of the worst tribulations and they're passed down and they keep our memory alive. Maybe it's not what we of the modern day would call an accurate memory, but it's a true memory. It's a memory of the best of our spirit, a memory of the best we can be, a memory that there's something greater to strive toward. And I also think it's important when we see this to ask ourselves why it is that our enemies, the people who hate Christ, who hate Western civilization, and who hate the European people, have been working so very, very hard to tear down our myths, to knock down the statues of our heroes. They know the power of those memories, and they know the power of heroes, and they fear our heroes the same way they scurry away like cockroaches every time they see a cross. We may have forgotten the power of our heroes, but our enemies have not, and I tell you this, if we remember those heroes, if we remember their deeds, if we remember those portraits which were painted of our collective soul, there is nothing that will stand in our way. And so I'd like to close this out in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the 19th episode of Notes from the End of Time. Kanaz Filen here with you, and may God bless us each and every one.